All right, good morning, everyone. We're starting a little bit late this morning, but we'll just uh, go until uh, we can stop, just uh, even if I don't get very far today. Um, I'll be with you the next three Sundays, I believe, so we'll just see what we can do. I'm fresh off of some very uh, in-depth teaching uh, on Jewish outreach and the relationship between Israel and the church out in South Dakota. Thank you guys for praying for me. Those videos were on Facebook Live. I still, I think they're still up there if you want to go listen. I'm going to be using some of the things over the next couple of messages that I taught. Um, but before we get started, Bishnu asked me to send you his love and greetings. I spoke to him a few minutes ago. I apologize for slipping out. I needed to take that call, but it was a good call. There's some things coming together about what we prayed about concerning my trip and being able to work this out. So it was a big step hearing from him this morning. And so God's already starting to answer that prayer. So I praise God for that. Let's look up Revelation 14. We're still in verse 1. And we're going to be in verse 1 probably today as well. Um, The reason this verse is important is because I believe it is the ultimate manifestation of the first fruits of what Paul calls the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. This is the ultimate manifestation, the first fruits of the Israel of God that inherits all the promises made to them in the Old Testament concerning their national restoration. These are the 144,000 witnesses, and it's a snapshot of them with the Lamb, a snapshot of victory top Mount Zion. We talked about how when we think about war, we think about war in our history books in terms of snapshots. When we think about World War II and our victory there, particularly in the Pacific Theater, the snapshot that comes to mind is this, Iwo Jima, right? And one picture, about three or four of these Marines in this photo were killed a couple days after this. So it's on top of Mount Suribachi. But another picture we don't see much, a snapshot of victory, is this. This is the whole platoon after the flag is lifted, and they're gathered on a mountaintop celebrating. It's not the end of the war, but it's, it's a very significant victory that brings about the complete end. And so what we see in Revelation 14, one is a snapshot of a victory campaign that's... Uh, just the beginning of a cleanup process. The, the Lamb has rescued His first fruits. And um, since this is what I call the Israel of God, as Paul references in Galatians 6.16, today the Israel of God are the Jewish believers that are part of the church. That verse is what's used by replacement theology to try to say that the church has replaced Israel and that the promises that are literally given to Israel in the Old Testament are spiritually to be applied to Gentiles. Of course, the curses, they still apply to Israel. That's what most replacement theology would say. So Galatians 6.16 is one of the pillars in their house built on a foundation of sand. And so we talked about that, and I showed you why that's an improper interpretation that ignores the context. And I just want to continue today, proceeding from this verse, to look at the other pillar that this theology uses to try to say that a Jew is not a Jew. And then I want to look at some terms that we hear, and how do these relate? How does Abraham relate to us? What is a Jew? What is uh, uh, an Israeli? 
and then we'll go into the chapter. These are just some kind of necessitated by the words of John here. So in Revelation 14.1, he says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. I believe this is the literal Mount Zion in the land of Israel today. I'll explain that later. And with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. This is who we are introduced to in Revelation 7, those missionaries. And then we see later that they are the first fruits. So that means there's others as well. Um, now, from there, uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 2. We've already looked at Galatians 6.16. And I posted that message yesterday on the podcast. It's entitled, Beware of Replacement Theology. Revelation 14.1. Let's look at Romans 2.28 and 29. I hear this passage quoted a lot to try to imply that the land of Israel is not important anymore in God's plans, the people of Israel are not important, that has been applied to us. And I've heard this passage quoted as if it's being spoken about Gentiles. Paul says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. Okay? Those verses taken by themselves lead some to think that we, having the faith of Abraham, are spiritual Jews. That we're Jews. Some have taken this teaching to an extreme and claimed that people in the UK and America are the new Israel. That's called Armstrongism. Herbert Armstrong came up with that nonsense. You've got those in the black communities that have taken this to the extreme and say they are the Jews. These are all the blacks from Africa that were transported to North and South America. Foolishness. And then you've got those that say, see, a Jew's not one that's ethnically Jewish. It's a spiritual thing. So, God's not concerned with people that are ethnically Jewish, that are physical descendants of Abraham. It's a spiritual thing. The church is the new Israel. Nothing can be farther from the truth. If we look at the context here, Paul is clearly teaching the difference between an ethnic Jew who is, does not have the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and an ethnic Jew that does have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ethnicity is not in question. It's the heart. One without the other doesn't mean anything. It's very similar to our position as believers in the church. Okay, Being right with God, being, being born again is not a matter of water baptism. Water baptism identifies us with the local church. But if we have a water baptism without a spiritual baptism, it's ultimately meaningless. A water baptism carries with it a testimony only if there is a spiritual baptism. So a true Christian is not a Christian in name that's been baptized into a church. A true Christian is one who has been baptized by the Holy Spirit in the heart and thereby has been baptized by immersion into the local church as a step of obedience to God. That's what the comparison is here. Now, 
Replacement theology imagines that this is some new revelation in the New Testament about a, a true Jew versus a physical Jew. That somehow a Jew is being re redefined here as a Gentile Christian. There's some real problems with this. When we look at Scriptures, when God gives us Scripture, we have to mind the context. If you're seeking the Lord's will in the Scriptures... I would always say if you're seeking wisdom from God, go to the Scriptures. But don't cherry-pick something out without paying attention to the context. You may see a Scripture, and if you fail to read, you're thinking God's telling you something completely opposite than what He is. And it's not His fault. We don't read newspapers like that. We don't read magazines. We don't read internet articles like that. Mind the context. And then you're obligated to take what you've been, what's been revealed to you and seek godly counsel Seek peace, look at your circumstances and all those things to confirm it. Bad theology is when we don't mind the text. In this context, to say that a Jew is not ethnic, that it's Gentiles, this interpretation completely disregards the context of what Paul later says in Romans 9-11. through and he gives a warning at the end of that argument that we as Gentiles need to be very careful that we don't boast against the natural branches. Turn to Romans chapter 11. If Paul is arguing that the church, mostly Gentiles, is a new Israel, then I need to try to figure out what in the world he's talking about in Revelation, I mean Romans 11:13. It doesn't make any sense. For I speak to you Gentiles, insomuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If a Gentile is all of a sudden a Jew, what does he mean I'm speaking to you Gentiles? He's speaking to Gentile Christians. And then if you go down to verse 18, boast not against the branches. That's the natural branches, the Jewish foundation. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. These things make absolutely no sense. You go to the end of Romans 11, verse 25, For I would not, breath that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Well, if the church is the fullness of the Gentiles, how in the world can Israel be the fullness of the Gentiles? It simply doesn't make sense. To argue this, Replacement theology from Romans 2, 28-29 is to ignore the context of Paul's argument in Romans 9-11. It also ignores what he says immediately thereafter. We see these chapter divisions in Scripture. And we think that just because there's a chapter division, that immediately the argument or the subject changes. That's not true. Those are in there as guideposts to help us find things and reference things. Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. There were no chapters in there. These are not inspired, and the people that put them in there didn't claim that they were. They're study tools. But chapter 3, verse 1 is not a new, new topic. He's talked about what is a true Jew, and then he says immediately thereafter, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. 
If a true Jew is suddenly a Gentile and not an ethnic Jew, what sense does that make? The very first two verses of the next chapter. So that is bad interpretation that ignores the immediate context. Beware of replacement theology. It also ignores a more distant context. What Paul is saying here about a true Jew, outward versus inward and outward, is not a new revelation. It's not a new doctrine in the New Testament. To say that it is, or to assume that the church is replacing Israel, ignores the very same spiritual circumcision that was preached to Jews by Moses himself. Moses himself. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Moses is talking to the children of Israel. The children of Israel are not just the children of Abraham. They're not the sons of Ishmael. They're the children of Isaac. They're not the sons of Esau. They're the children of Jacob. Moses, in speaking to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says these words in Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Circumcision was never just a physical thing. It was an outward testimony of an inward change. It was an outward testimony of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. When you see in Genesis that God tells Abraham to circumcise the men of his household, it's immediately after God says, therefore. What's therefore? Therefore. God has made an unconditional promise to Abraham. An unconditional promise. Abraham believes and it's counted to him to write for righteousness. God tells Abraham what he's going to do in terms of his seed and in terms of the land that he's going to give to his descendants. And then it says, therefore, you are to circumcise the foreskin of your flesh. Not in order to, but therefore. The outward circumcision was always an outward visible testimony to men of an inward testimony to God. It's the same as baptism. That doesn't mean baptism is a new form of circumcision. I'm not arguing that. But it's the same thing. Baptism is an outward testimony to men. It puts a believer in a proper relationship with the church of God because he's already in a proper relationship with the Son of God by a baptism of the heart. Circumcision was never just a physical thing. It was for a lot of people who were dead in their sins. It was for the people that fell in the wilderness, but it wasn't for the remnant. Um, turn to Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6. It doesn't stop there. Moses again says to the generation getting, to go into the, getting ready to go into the land. These, these, both of these passages are to the generation that did not fall in the wilderness. Moses is saying, look, your fathers that fell didn't circumcise their heart. It was just outward. It was meaningless. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all and that thou mayest live. So here God is saying that He's going to have a remnant of Jewish people that have been circumcised in the flesh and in the heart. God's promising it. He's not giving some veiled revelation to Moses, to Jews, getting ready to go into the promised land that this is really going to be Gentiles one day. Circumcision of the heart is exactly what Moses taught to the people of Israel. Paul is 
teaching nothing new. The prophet Jeremiah refers to this after in the days that judgment is coming upon uh, the, 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 the Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah is preaching and lamenting over Judah and preaching a warning of God's judgment. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, he preaches to them, Circumcise their, yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your flesh? No. The foreskin of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doing. So here the prophet is telling ethnic Jews to circumcise their hearts. So Romans 2, 28 and 29 has to be taken with this in mind. This is the distant context. A true Jew, Paul is saying, is not only inward. A true Jew is outward and inward. Just like a true Christian is not only inward. If you're truly born again, you would not object to following the Lord and believers' baptism. If you did, then that would be evidence that the church could call your faith into question. Baptism doesn't save, but baptism is proof to the brethren who have been told to judge a man by his fruits that you're sincere. A true Christian is going to obey the Lord because he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's not going to be baptized to be saved. He'll be baptized biblically because he is saved. It's the same thing here. A true Jew is ethnic and spiritual. So Paul's not saying ethnic versus spiritual. He's talking about ethnic versus ethnic and spiritual. If you remember, turn back in Revelation to chapter 2. This was the message to the church at Smyrna. At the, at, the, at the church of Smyrna, there would have been Jewish believers because in the early days of the church, after Jerusalem was sacked and the believers were scattered, there was still a very large part of the church that was Jewish. John, being Jewish, was an overseer of these, last, of these seven churches. So undoubtedly, there were Jewish believers in this church at Smyrna. And Jesus said to them, the persecuted church, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. As much a part of being Jewish as the blood of Abraham is the faith of Abraham. So if you've got just the blood and not the faith, then Jesus said it best. You are of your father the devil, and the works of your father you do. Okay? Um, so we already talked about this. We co compare and contrasted ethnic or natural Israel versus natural and spiritual Israel. Long ago, that's in an old message from a couple years ago. True Israel, the Israel of God, is the spiritual remnant within national Israel. It's not outside of that. It's not Gentile. It's within there, these will inherit the kingdom promised to Israel in Messiah with the Old Testament saints. In the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation that we're talking about now, true Israel is the 144,000, the first fruits, 
and their Jewish converts, the harvest, many of them martyred. Zechariah tells us this will only be a third of the Jewish people living in the land at that time. Two-thirds of them will be killed, will be, will be destroyed. Isaiah refers to it as a small remnant, a tenth that will return like a teal tree. A tenth of the Jews in the world. But this is true Israel amongst a national Israel that will be brought to destruction and dismay in the time of Jacob's trouble. Yet out of that, God will save the true Israel. Spiritual and ethnic. Those that are driven not to curse God as so many Jewish people were after the Holocaust, but to cry out to Him in Messiah because they're brought to the place where they have no option and Messiah will save them. The church is something else. The church is something else than Israel. In fact, I would say the church is a privileged position. The church is a position that a Jewish person ought to covet to be a part of that. We ought to labor diligently today to bring the gospel to Jewish people that they might believe and become the Israel of God that is part of the church and thereby escape the terrible birth pangs of Messiah. Escape the time of Jacob's trouble. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. The church is a mystery. It's a special program in God's plan. God always planned for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. It was prophesied that Messiah... It's an easy thing, Messiah, to, to raise up the preserved of Israel, Isaiah says in chapter 49. But He's also going to be a light to the Gentiles. Simeon prophesied that in the temple when Mary came to offer up the offering of her purification with the baby Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3, I'll begin. How that by the revelation He made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read and you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is the mystery? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same bodies and partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. He doesn't say that the Gentiles should be the heirs, but the fellow heirs. That means there's their heir, which is Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. You can't say that from this passage or we wouldn't be a fellow heir. We'd be the heir as Gentiles. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The church is a mystery. It's Jew and Gentile together in one body of Christ. It doesn't replace the promises made to national Israel. It affirms them. It affirms them. Look at Isaiah, Acts, Acts chapter 15. I know we're flipping around in the Bible. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. We learn a lot more detail about what happened here. If you go to Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Paul talks about going down there 14 years after he was saved. He went down with Barnabas to 
to report what God had done among the Gentiles. And there's this debate over, is the Holy Spirit given to the Gentiles? Should they be required to be Jews? Should they be required to keep the law? These were the questions. Simon Peter got up and preached there at the Jerusalem Council and said that, look, I saw the Holy Spirit poured out upon the Gentiles. It's very clear that God intended to do this. It's, it's there in the writings of the prophets. And then James stands up and he gives a sentence here. A ruling. The early church. The early church here was mostly Jewish. We're indebted to the Jewish people as Gentile followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they gave us the Word of God. They gave us the Christ of God and they gave us the church of God. The very first Christians were Jews, the very first church, the very first pastors, the very first missionaries. That alone ought to motivate us to reach out to the Jewish people with the gospel of Messiah. It ought not motivate us to want to usurp what's been promised to them for ourselves and to despise them, as so many so-called Christians do. But uh, James stands up here and says something very important. We've looked at this before. Uh, repetition is often the key to knowing, so I, I'm sorry if I repeat myself. Verse 14, Simeon or Peter hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. God, first thing God's going to do here is take out a people for His name, the Gentiles. Most of, the church is mostly Gentiles today. The church. And then Je and, uh, Peter, uh, sorry, James says, And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, after what? After God calls out a people amongst the Gentiles, after God builds His church, what? I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. So we have an order here. God's going to call out a people amongst the Gentiles for His name, the church. After that, He's going to raise up the tabernacle of David and He's going to build again the ruins thereof so that the residue of men, including Gentiles, will call upon Him. That fits with what we see in Revelation. The church is called out. God is finished. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Turns again to Israel. The first fruits are 144,000 witnesses. Their fruit is great preaching around the world in the time of Antichrist. Many Jews come to faith, as do the residue of the Gentiles, the gleanings of that great harvest that have never heard the gospel. And they come, they pay for it with their lives, but Christ returns, the temple is set up, and they're all there in one fellowship. It all agrees together. There's no way the church has replaced Israel. This makes no sense. And then James goes on to say, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which are from among the Gentiles who are turned to God, but that they do these things, abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Why? Verse 21, For Moses of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So in other words, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles and make them be a part of the Jewish law. They're, but they need to do these things to make sure they're not a stumbling block to those that are followers of the Mosaic Law. Jews within the church, 
and those without. Okay, um, you know, keeping aspects of the law. So obviously, uh, there's no way the church has replaced Israel. Beware of replacement theology. Turn to Isaiah 49 because James here is, makes it clear that the prophets give testimony to this. God doing a special work amongst the Gentiles. I already referenced this verse, Isaiah 49 verse 6. And he said, it, it is a light thing, this is about Messiah, that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. So Israel's obviously preserved. There's four things God created that He preserves that man cannot destroy. Creation, God preserves it. Man can't destroy it even if he wants to. won't happen. He can think he can, but he won't. God will restrain it, just like God restrained the people at the Tower of Babel. The Word of God is preserved. Man can't destroy it. Many have tried, many have tainted it, many have corrupted it, but the pure Word is still here for us in a language we can understand. The church is preserved. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Since Pentecost, A.D. 30, there has been a church on this planet and it's never gone anywhere. Despite terrible persecution, despite terrible doctrinal compromise and heresy, it's still here. It's still here. It's preserved. Israel is also preserved as a people. A miracle of history. Preserved. No one will destroy it. Many will try. Antichrist will try. He will almost succeed, but Jesus Christ will rescue His people. Israel is preserved. I will, God's saying here that it's, it's an easy thing that Messiah would uh, raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved of Israel. But I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Messiah was always meant to be a light to the Gentiles. Always. Turn to Luke 2. Luke 2.32 If the church has replaced Israel, this makes absolutely no sense. Simeon, verse 30, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Israel is the descendants of Jacob. Christ is... The, 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 Jew, the rabbis today say that Jesus is just for the Gentiles. Replacement theology basically says that. Both of them are wrong. Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, is for, the, for Israel and for the Gentiles. They've got it wrong. You know, replacement theology is a lot more like the Orthodox rabbis than it is like the Christian church. I mean, it really is. They're saying the same thing. Um, just like, do you remember when we talked about the advent of Messiah and how His first dominion would come to the tower of the flock and the argument being made there is that the Babylonian captivity would prove what God was prophesying about Messiah. It would affirm it. It would affirm it. Um, Israel's rejection of their Messiah doesn't prove uh, that they've been rejected by God. It affirms that God will do what He said He was going to do. It affirms it. He's going to build up the Gentiles first. After this, He's going to raise them back up. In fact, their rejection proves God's faithfulness. In Malachi, He says, I am the Lord. This is after the people have come back from the captivity and this is where the seeds 
of modern Judaism were sown in this period. The synagogues and the traditions and the Pharisees were sown in this period. Malachi preached against that dead religion. And he said, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Israel are not consumed. In a time when they were turning away into dead religion, when they should have known to keep the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God says, you're not consumed because I don't change. I keep my promises. It's very interesting that a lot of replacement theology goes hand in hand with Reformed doctrine. You know, Reformed doctrine can mean a lot of different things. And there's a lot of people out here today claiming to be Reformed. Well, what does that mean? I just came back from a part of the country where old line Reformed churches are popular. And they're very dead. There's very little evangelism. There's very little spirit. It's very liturgical. But yet you've got people that are faithful to go out on the streets and preach the gospel and witness and be very bold who would call themselves Reformed. So what is it? Reformed doctrine goes back a lot, is built upon the teachings of some of the Reformation leaders who came out of the Catholic Church. There was a, there's a lot of emphasis on the doctrines of grace. Some people have tried to articulate that as Calvinism and as a five-point fork and tulip and all of this stuff. There's a lot of truth in the doctrines of grace. I believe in doctrines of grace because they're taught in the Scriptures. But I'm not going to sit here and try to articulate them according to some theology. Okay? Um, the Bible articulates them for us. But there's a lot of other elements of Reformed theology, particularly the eschatology, that are wrong. They're very Catholic in my opinion. So I don't like to use words like reform to describe who I am. I want to be a Bible believer. Amen. One who just takes God's Word at His Word and believes it. Okay, I believe that salvation is of the Lord, not because Calvin said so in a long treatise about the Christian faith, but because the Bible says so. Jonah himself said it from the belly of the well. Salvation is of the Lord. But what does that even mean, Reformed? Sadly, Reformed theology today is kind of a fad. And people jump on that label and it's like, well, these great men of the faith believed it. They must have been right. And I've got their, uh, their interpretations to, to, to back me up. Well, I'm, I'm not going to follow a man. Even the most godly of men could be wrong from time to time. Solid on some points, yet miss it on others. We've got to be students of the Word. Even the congregation, though, under the authority of the elders of this church, holds the elders accountable. Even so, we have to hold each other accountable. But I don't even know what that means, and sadly it goes hand-in-hand hand a lot of times with bad eschatology, this idea that we've got to conquer the world, and out of a reformed thinking a lot of times, you could be accused of not being saved because of the way you get your vote on election day. Because it's all about we've got to take over the world. And we're going to find something wrong with everybody in power. And no one's ever good enough to rule or to sit in leadership. Instead of submitting like the Scriptures say, we're always complaining. Out of Reformed theology comes a lot of anti-Semitism. It doesn't mean that people who claim to be Reformed are anti-Semites. But a lot of times it goes hand in hand. So I don't want to even go there. 
I don't want to label myself as a follower of a man or a follower of a theology. My theology ought to be built and established upon the Word of God. And it ought to be able to change if the Word of God in its proper context makes itself clear. By and large, people who follow the Lord will have a consistent theology over their Christian walk, not swinging back and forth on a pendulum like some people do. That just doesn't happen when you have the Holy Spirit of God teaching you. It'll be modified though. You'll come to deeper understandings. So don't be loyal to a theology. Be loyal to the Word of God. Be consistent. But one of the the great preachers that's often cited or beloved by Reformed theology, particularly with regard to the doctrines of grace, is Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher. Spurgeon taught some grace. I've never found anything that Spurgeon said that I would disagree with. Never. He had a proper understanding of biblical doctrines of grace. He wasn't caught up in defining them according to a system. But people often cite him as a beloved, reformed theologian. And yet, reformed theology is often often replacement theology. What's the problem? I found some interesting things that Spurgeon preached um, concerning Israel, the Israel of God. Now, you've got to keep in mind when I read this statement that this was written in the 1800s. There was no modern state of Israel. There was no Zionism. There was no vision for that. The land of Israel was under the rule of the Ottoman Turks. It was part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. The Ottomans were Muslims or Mohammedans. The Ottoman Empire was not overthrown until World War I. Ottomans were aligned with Germany and those, uh, I forget what they called them in World War I. I guess it was the Axis, I'm not sure. But America and Britain and France went to war in World War I and they fought against Germany and the Ottomans and others and the Ottomans were overthrown. And the League of Nations gave uh, security uh, uh, authority to the British to manage the land of Palestine. It was called the Mandate, the British Mandate. They were given control over the land of Palestine, which included modern-day Israel, Dan to Beersheba, and the area east of the Jordan River, the Transjordan, the, three, the area that God gave to the, the, three, the two and a half uh, tribes there before they crossed the river. That mandate given after World War I was set to expire. It was given for a limited period of time. It was to expire in May of 1948. I believe it expired on the 13th or maybe on the 14th. And so once that expired, that's when Israel declared its independence and was vote, it was declared to be a nation by the United Nations. So none of that stuff had happened. There was no indication that God was giving the land back to the Jewish people. The Jewish people were scattered all over the world. Very few of them believed in the gospel. Uh, And Spurgeon probably had very little contact with Jewish people at that time. And yet, he wrote these words in a message entitled, The Church of Christ. The hour is approaching when the tribes shall go up to their own country. When Judea, so long a howling wilderness, shall once more blossom like the rose. 
when if the temple itself be not restored, yet on Zion's hill shall be raised some Christian building. I've stayed in a Christian building there in Zion. Uh, the, uh, uh, a church there, that, uh, the oldest Protestant church in Jerusalem. And I've slept there. It's a guest house, Christ Church. Where the chants of solemn praise shall be heard as erst of the old psalms of David were sung in the tabernacle. I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think enough about it. But certainly if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. I imagine that you cannot read the Bible without seeing clearly that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel. For when the Jews are restored, the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in. And as soon as they return, then Jesus will come upon Mount Zion. Exactly what we see in Revelation 14.1. With His ancients gloriously, and the halcyon days of the millennium shall then dawn. We shall then know every man to be a brother and a friend. Christ shall rule with universal sway. That was pretty prophetic. Spurgeon didn't see to live, live to see those days, but he knew it was clear in the Scriptures that the restoration of the Jews would mark the end, would mark the, the king, when all would come together. Um, Paul tells us something important here in Romans chapter 15 that gets overlooked. I preached on this out in Missouri, and I preached on it at our conference. It's been overlooked. We think about how we are supposed to be toward the natural branches in Romans 9-11. through 11. But look what he says here in Romans 15, verse 27. Or let's start at verse 25. Paul is wanting to visit these Roman believers. He wants to come to Rome. He's never been able to go there. He's writing to them. He's telling them about the natural branches versus the wild olive branches grafted in, about his heart for Israel, even though he's the apostle of the Gentiles. There were undoubtedly Romans, mostly Gentiles in this church, but some Jewish people. And Paul says this, Now I go to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. He can't go to Rome until he goes to Jerusalem first. And then we learn that that's what ends up getting him to Rome because he gets arrested and appeals to Caesar and he's shipwrecked and he finally gets to Rome at the end of Acts. Why is he going to Jerusalem? I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. The saints in Jerusalem at this time were Jewish. Jewish believers. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. The churches in Macedonia and Achaia were Gentiles. When Paul got his Macedonian vision there and went over and went west, took the gospel to the Greeks, there were believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It hath pleased them to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So they gathered something for Paul to take and give to the Jewish followers of Yeshua in Jerusalem. Now what you have to remember is that these Macedonian and Achaian churches were not like the Corinthians. They were not well-to-do. They were poor themselves. In fact, you learn this when you read what Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 1. They're the ones to whom Paul writes about the rapture in the day of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, Paul uses their example to shame the Corinthians. The Corinthians were well-to-do people. The Corinthians had made a promise they were going to support Paul. 
a year earlier. And then they never got around to doing it. And Paul was like, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. The people in Macedonia and Achaia supplied my need when you wouldn't. And they did it out of deep poverty. They were poor and increased their missions giving and God blessed them. And they gave of themselves. So we know they were in deep poverty, yet it pleased them to take something and send to the Jewish, their Jewish brethren in Christ in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 27. Why did it please them to do this, these Gentile believers? It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. Jewish believers are debtors. I mean, Gentile believers are debtors to the Jewish people. Even more so to the Jewish, follower, Jewish followers of the Messiah. Why? For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. We are partakers of the spiritual things of the Jews. The faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Old Testament. Therefore, it's our duty to minister to the Jewish people in carnal things. That means earthly things. Earthly needs. Especially those who are of the household of faith. So many of these churches today, stand, we stand with Israel. We support Israel. We're going to help them build their temple. We want to help them build their settlements. All of this political stuff. I don't want to give any money to rabbis to help them build a temple that Antichrist is going to sit in. And all the while, our Jewish brothers in Christ in Israel, 20 to 30,000 today get neglected. If we're going to take up something for Israel, let's take up for the Messianic believers who are preaching the gospel. Don't give it to rabbis who put it in their pockets. A lot of the religious Judaism and the charities associated with it is just as corrupt as the ones in Nepal. Why would I give to that? I'm not going to give to that. I'm not going to give some rabbi that's not preaching the truth. I stand with Israel. I support Israel. But even more so, the ones that are my brothers and sisters in the church. We can't overlook those. They get overlooked. It's sad. But we have a duty to minister to the Jewish people in their carnal things. That's why I would say that any great commission ministry, it doesn't matter if you're... Maybe I'm called to Nepal to be a missionary in Nepal completely. Maybe I'm called to Gentiles. Maybe our church supports missionaries to Gentiles. Some part of our mission's vision ought to include ministry to the Jewish people. If it doesn't, then we're not in balance. It's not true Great Commission. The Great Commission was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, yet everywhere he went, he went to the Jews first. He never forgot them. That's a topic for another day. But when it says we have been made partakers here of their spiritual things, that word partakers means to share with. It doesn't mean take away from. It doesn't mean we've taken their promises to ourselves. We share in those promises. The church has not replaced Israel. The 144,000 in Revelation 14 is literal. It's not Gentiles. It's not Jehovah's Witnesses. JWs used to teach they were the 144,000, but when their membership roles exceeded that, then they had to change all of that doctrine after their prophet died to, to say something else. Always changing, always changing. So with this in mind... I wanted to just go over to help you kind of understand some terminology here. What's the relationship between 
Israel and the church, between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. And I did this little chart that I hope will help you. Um, it's probably hard to read, but I'll read it from there. Here we have Abraham. Abraham was, God appeared to him in Genesis 12, uh, again in Genesis 15, 17, 19, and throughout the book, made promises. Abraham was 75 years old when he came into the land of Canaan. And God said, get out of your country and go to a land that I will, promise, that I will give to you and your seed. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Now, after the flood, what did God intend to do? What did God do? He always had a remnant. He had a remnant from Adam all the way to... And he had a witness from Adam all the way to Noah. From Noah all the way to Abraham. But after the Tower of Babel and the nations were scattered, what you had is a sea of nations. A sea of nations speaking different languages. Couldn't understand each other. So no more was it, let's go to the, the patriarchs and let's learn the truth. No more is it, let's go to this great pillar that was inscribed by Adam with revelation from God and learn from it. We had a sea of nations. So what God purposed to do with Abraham is to raise up and create a nation out of a sea of nations and that nation would teach the sea of nations about the true God. That's what happened. God made a promise when Abraham was 20, 75 years old. God did not appear to Abraham again until at least 10 years later when he said, look at the stars of heaven. Abraham was 24 years older. 24 years after God made this original promise to Abraham, <coughs> Sarah got pregnant. Abraham was 100 when um, Isaac was born. Isaac was probably anywhere from 5 to 30 years old, somewhere in that window when Abraham offered him up. We don't know exactly. Isaac was 40 years old when he found Rebekah. Isaac was 60 when the twins were born. Jacob and Esau were 15 years old when Abraham died. Jacob was 77 years or Isaac was about 80 years old when God appeared to him at Gerar and Beersheba and confirmed the promises. Jacob was 77 the first time God appeared to him at Bethel. Jacob was 97 the second time God appeared to him after he'd given him 12 sons. This wasn't faith that had an immediate result. This wasn't faith where God answered a prayer and did it immediately the next day, the next week, the next month, or the next year. How often do we expect God to hear us now? Do it now! Abraham waited years. But he was a man of faith. God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham's name was changed. He would be the father of many nations. Abraham had a seed through Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. Remember, God said, I'm going to give you a seed. And Sarah just didn't think there's any way she could give birth at her old age. And so she encouraged Abraham to go into her handmaiden who was an Egyptian named Hagar. Hagar was impregnated and she gave birth to Ishmael. Ishmael was the seed of the flesh. Trying to, do, trying to take God's promises into our own hands. Trying to fulfill them for Him. The consequences of that foolishness are today in the land of Israel. They're seen today when these wacko fools protest in America and wave Palestinian flags. They're seen today in Islamic terrorism. There were consequences for that. God made a promise. 
I'll make a great nation out of Ishmael, even though you did something foolish here, I'm not going to change my promise. And he did make great nations and kings out of Ishmael. Ishmael would be a wild man. He'd be a violent man. Everywhere he goes, stirring up trouble. That's pretty much Arabs. That's pretty much Islam. It's not a racist statement. It's a true statement. Ishmael is not an heir of promise. So the promise that God gave to Abraham for a seed and a land and a people was not Ishmael. He's not the heir of promise. In Galatians 4, Paul makes this very clear. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Abraham had a seed in Isaac, the child of promise, when he was a hundred years old. Sarah was 90. Okay? God made a promise. Isaac is the heir of promise. Romans chapter 9, verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Isaac shall shall thy seed be called. Okay? Abraham had a seed in Ishmael, but the promise was narrowed to Isaac. He's the seed of promise. It was narrowed. So when we talk about the spiritual seed of Abraham or the seed of Abraham, we're not talking about the heir of the flesh. We're talking about the heir of promise. It's the promises and the covenants are narrowed into Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. God appeared to him twice. Once before he went up to Laban and once on his way back before he met up with Esau. God made a promise that through Jacob, he would fulfill what he promised to Abraham and Isaac concerning a land, a people, and a seed. Israel is the father of the children of Israel. So when we speak of the children of Israel, we're talking about children of Abraham, but they're only children of Abraham insofar as they've come through Isaac and Jacob. We're not talking about the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. We're not talking about the Ishmaelites or the, um, the Arabs. We're talking about the children of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. The children of Israel. The children of Jacob. Twelve tribes, twelve sons. All of these twelve tribes, we get the people of Israel. The people of Israel, ethnically speaking, Jewish people come from one of these twelve tribes. And when we look at the children of Israel, we have two types of the children of Israel. We have ethnic Jews. Jews that have the blood and the genes and the DNA of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ethnic Jews. Ethnic Jews are circumcised only in the flesh. They've been cir- the men have been circumcised in the flesh, a sign of the covenant. The Bible says that there are natural blessings that go with being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are natural blessings. You can see that in the world today, regardless of where a Jewish person's faith is. If they have the blood of Abraham, there are certain blessings. They're able to take something very small and multiply it. They can take a penny. Some of them have come to this country in times past without two nickels to rub together and have built a business and it's been blessed. And they're very wealthy today. Some of the wealthiest Jewish people in this country started out as uh, poverty-stricken when their families immigrated here. They're natural blessings. 
There are natural blessings when you go to the land of Israel. The desert has bloomed, just like Spurgeon said it would. You can see the border very clearly between Syria and Israel in the Golan Heights. Orchards, fruits, uh, bounty, immediately stops desert. As clear as can be. There's natural blessings that go with that. But then there's another type of the children of Israel. You have ethnic Jews, circumcised in the flesh only, but you also have ethnic and believing Jews. So they're circumcised in the flesh and in the heart. Deuteronomy 36, we read it earlier. True Jews that Paul refers to in Romans 2, 28-29. With ethnic and believing Jews, there are natural and spiritual blessings. So, two types of Jews. Ethnic Jews and true Jews, which don't only have the blood, the DNA, and the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've got the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how does this relate to us? Abraham is also the father of believing Gentiles. Those that have the faith of Abraham, like us who are Gentiles that believe in God and take Him at His word, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father as well. He's our father because he's our father in the faith. In addition to these natural seeds, the children of the flesh, the children of promise, there are a, there's a spiritual seed there. We are the children of Abraham, spiritually speaking, because we have his faith. The Bible says that we believing Gentiles are fellow heirs. That means there must be another heir. And we're partakers of the promise of the gospel. Ephesians 3. So this brings up a term you will hear. The spiritual seed of Abraham. What does it mean when we speak of the spiritual seed of Abraham? Who is the spiritual seed of Abraham? It is believing Gentiles and it is ethnic and believing Jews. The spiritual seed of Abraham is believing Gentiles and ethnic and believing children of Israel or children of Jacob. It's Jews and Gentiles, not Gentiles replacing Jews. Anybody have any questions about that? Is that helpful to you? We have both of these groups. Both of these groups from the spiritual seed of Abraham are addressed by Paul in Galatians 6.16. This is the pet passage of replacement theology and they miss it. They miss it terribly. Galatians 6.16 makes reference to both of these groups that form the spiritual seed of Abraham. Paul has talked about, you know, God forbid that I should glory only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ there is neither circumcision or uncircumcision. He's declaring the gospel. And then in Galatians 6.16, As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them in mercy. That's the believing Gentiles. As many as walk according to the rule that salvation is in Messiah, that only in Him can we be saved. Believing Gentiles. First part of the verse. Peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God would be ethnic and believing Jews. So you have both parts of the spiritual seed of Abraham 
referred to by Paul here in Galatians 6.16. Galatians 6.16 doesn't prove uh, replacement theology is correct. It proves it's wrong. Uh, Israel of God, Galatians 6.16b. That is the spiritual seed of Abraham. These are the true Jews, circumcised in flesh and of the heart, and it is out of true Israel, which in this dispensation are part of the church. But when Christ takes the church out of the world, out of true Israel will be raised up the witnesses. And their true Israel before the church was seen within the nation. Always a remnant. 7,000 hadn't bowed the knee to Baal in Elijah's day. There were remnant believers waiting for Messiah when He came. The prophets, the saints. Today it's part of the church. This necessitates us looking at some ther- terminology. And, I, and I'm going to just get into this just a little bit and then I'm going to quit because we can't finish it. But we hear a lot of different terminology. If you guys will let, can you, will you let me go to one? Okay. A lot of terminology here that we get confused and we need to understand the difference. The very first word we often hear is Hebrew. What is a Hebrew? What does that even mean? Today, the word Hebrew mostly, it mainly refers to a language. A language spoken by Jewish people. But Abraham in the Bible is called Abraham the Hebrew, the friend of God. What does that mean? Turn to Genesis 10. What is this word Hebrew? Genesis 10, verse 21. Shem. Shem was one of the sons of Noah after the flood. And unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, Elam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah. Selah begat Eber. Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Okay? Shem had a descendant named Eber. The word Hebrew comes from this man's name. Eber had two sons, Peleg and Joktan. It's through Peleg that Abraham later comes. Peleg's important because it says in his days, this, the days of this son of Eber, the earth was divided. I believe this indicates that it was in Peleg's day that God confounded the languages at Babel and the, the nations were divided. It could also coincide with, I believe Babel could have coincided with a physical dividing of the continents. There's evidence geologically that the continents were once one, and they would have, the men would have had to spread out across the earth after Babel and that either the flood or possibly something, some kind of natural uh, shaking took place in the days of Peleg. And the earth wasn't just literally divided by land, it was divided in terms of land. So something radical happened in Peleg's day that divided the nations. And as a result, God chose to raise up a nation out of a sea of nations through Abraham to teach the world about Himself. Because the, uh, the patriarch's line was coming, the old world's line was coming to an end. Remember, Noah, Noah lived until two years before Abraham was born. Shem, was, uh, uh, Shem didn't die until Abraham was 150 years old. So, 
Isaac had been married to Rebekah ten years before Shem died. So that old witness was there, but it was passing away and it was, couldn't be the same because the earth had been divided into languages. So God raised up and did a work through Abraham. But Abraham was, a, was the great, 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 great grandson of Eber. Eber. He was a child of Eber. Genesis 14, 13. He was called Abraham the Hebrew. He was a known descendant of this Eber. And this Eber was a descendant of Shem. And this, it was in Eber's son's day that the earth was divided. So Abraham was known to be linked back to Shem, speaking the same language that was there before Babel confounded it all, and going all the way back to Adam. He was known as that. He was speaking and continued to speak the language of Shem, his sons, Eber, Peleg, down to Abraham. And then of course there are other languages now because all these other people got confounded. So he was Abraham the Hebrew. I think there's a linguistic element there. The word Eber, or Ivri, is what it is in Hebrew. Hebrew is Ivrit or Ivri. That word means to cross over or to pass through. We know that Abraham came from the other side of the Euphrates. God called him out of that. He was a Hebrew because he was a descendant of Eber and he had passed over. He was a wandering man. He passed over. Okay? A descendant of Eber was a descendant of Shem, was a descendant of Noah, was a descendant of all the pure line that wasn't corrupted by the coming of the, the, the fallen angels and things before the flood, all the way back to Adam. He was directly descended from Adam who was the Son of God. He was in line of a pure... He was, in, he was in the line of God's witness to men. And he bridged the days of one language and a confounding number of languages and nations. He was the son or descendant of Eber. The word Hebrew, it connotes a wandering people. You know, it, it, it means wandering. You know, so it was used to describe Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, in the days of their wandering. But it doesn't really make sense now. Especially with Israel back in the land. You wouldn't call Jewish people Hebrews. You would call what they speak Hebrew. Today that word Hebrew is, refers to those who speak Hebrew. It's a language. It's kind of like somebody calling us. Um, years ago, this would be a way you could refer to Jewish people. Years ago in America, over 200 years ago in America, more than 200 years ago, going back 400, uh, uh, 500 years ago, you could refer to Americans as colonists. Colonists. Now, would you call us that today? No. It doesn't make, it's, it's outdated. It doesn't, we're not colonists anymore. We're Americans. We've had our own nation now for 200 years. So when you refer to Jewish people as Hebrews, it's like somebody calling us a colonist. Don't do that. That, that. Don't say that. Refer to what they speak. Today, that word refers to the language of the Jewish people, Hebrew. And not only is the regathering of the Jewish people into the land a miracle, I don't think you understand what a miracle is the resurrection of the Hebrew language. Hebrew was a dead language until uh, before this century. And it was literally brought out of the ashes. It's the only dead language in the history of the world that's been resurrected and is now taught in homes. 
and in schools in a language whereby people in the land of Israel communicate today. It's a miracle. And that word Hebrew is referring to the language of Jewish people, primarily those living in the land. Yes. Yiddish was a language spoken by European Jews that was kind of uh, a mixture of German and like, like Semitic type languages. So, uh, not all, there's not, not everybody in Israel can understand Yiddish. There's some similarities, but it's got a big German influence, if I'm not mistaken. It's got some really good uh, curse words and some really good names to call people to if you're not happy with them. He does. Um, the next word, Jew. What is a Jew? When we say Jew. A Jew is a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not a physical descendant of Abraham. A physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's a descendant of Jacob through the line of Isaac a descendant of Abraham through the line of Isaac and Jacob. So, in a sense, a Jew is one of the twelve tribes of Jacob. The word in Hebrew is Yehudi. A Yehudi. Arabs use a word similar to that. Yehudi. Oh, Yehudi. There's a Yehudi. There's a Jew. Originally, the word Jew was derived from Judah, the tribe of Judah. A Jew was from the tribe of Judah. That's where the word Yehudi comes from. Judah. Yehuda. Judah. So people that were of the tribe of Judah. After the kingdom was divided, in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the one that ruled the northern kingdom, not a son of Solomon, but a servant of his prior, the word Jew came to be associated with those of the southern kingdom. And from day one, when the southern kingdom broke away, there were people from all the tribes there. Many of them moved down there because they weren't going to worship at the false calves. They weren't going to follow Jeroboam. They were going to worship at the temple. And so after the division of the kingdom, Jews were those who were primarily associated with the southern kingdom. And that included Judah. Simeon got absorbed into Judah. Benjamin was part of that. And then there were people from all the other tribes that came down. It tells us this very clearly in 1 Kings 12. When you go to the book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 5, we're told that Mordecai is identified as a Jew and of the tribe of Benjamin. So, originally referred to Judah, then became associated with the southern kingdom that had people from all the tribes down there. After the northern kingdom was captured and the Assyrians destroyed Samaria, and they were the, ten, the main part of the ten tribes was carried away captive, the word Jew came to be associated with the only ones remaining in the land that carried on the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it would include, by default, members of all the tribes. Um, in Luke chapter 2, you had a Jew by the name of Anna, a prophetess. She was of the tribe of Asher. So originally, tribe of Judah then southern kingdom, and then basically a term that refers to all Jews. Okay, It's kind of like that in martial arts. We, we, we're familiar with words like karate and kung fu. Karate was originally a specific type of martial art that over time came to be associated with 
martial arts in general. So when I'm talking to people that don't know much about martial arts, I'll just say karate because it has come to be, generally speaking, martial arts. Same thing with the word Jew. It refers to the children of Jacob through Isaac and Abraham. Today, there's been a blurring of that word. There's a debate. You know, the rabbis claim that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not Jewish anymore because a Jew equals Judaism. That's not true historically. Never has been. A Jew is an ethnic term. But there's been a blurring to say that it's a religious term. And therefore, if you become a follower of Yeshua, you're not Jewish anymore. You're not Jewish. Because Jew would be associated only with religion. There's been a blur. So a lot of times today in the mind of, 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 of the world or the mind of Jewish people, a Jew is one who practices Judaism. But in their mind, it would be rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism isn't any more like the Old Testament faith of Abraham than American churchianity is like New Testament Christianity. It's just not. A Jew typically is one who practices Judaism but is also a descendant of Abraham. You cannot deny the ethnic connotation there. A Jew today is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just Abraham. Not just Abraham and Isaac, but Jacob. That's what a Jew is today. The Jew, most of the Jews today don't know what tribe they're from. God knows. That's why He can seal 12,000 from each tribe, because He knows. So, Jew and Judaism is kind of blurred, but it is an ethnic term. Just like marriage connotes man and a woman, we can say it means man and a man all we want. Just like the rabbis can say Jew is one who practices Judaism all they want, but historically you can't divorce that connotation. You can say it all you want. You can say a square is a circle all you want, but it'll never be a circle. A Jew will never be anything that's not ethnically Jewish. Now, I've got five minutes here. I say the Jewish people in parentheses. When we talk to Jewish people as a Gentile, I don't like to use the word Jew. It's kind of got a... I know it's in the Bible, and I know there are certain contexts when we can use it. But we need to be careful because it's got a little bit of an anti-Semitic tone. You know, there's a lot of terminology out there like... Uh, my Judah went off, or that's Jewish money, or Jewish or Jew money, or, or uh, you're going to try to Jew me down. I mean, those are racist, prejudicial terms that have been used by people who are anti-Semitic. And I don't, I mean, I just would rather use the word Jewish people. If I'm trying to show my respect to a people that's beloved of God, instead of saying you Jews, or the Jews... I would say the Jewish people. My, my cousin, who's a missionary that we support in Las Vegas, told me that long ago, and I've tried to remember it. There are certain contexts where you could say it and it not be considered wrong, but I'd rather play it safe. You know, if I'm Jewish and I believe in Messiah and the, the, the lies of the rabbis frustrates the mess out of me, I'm going to go to Israel and I'm going to preach hard just like Paul did. Okay? But I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile. There's a level of respect and love that I need to communicate when I go to the land of Israel or when I engage the Jewish people. And to refer to them as Jewish people and not Jews is one way I can do that. Now, I'm not going to preach, you bunch of Jewish Jews, you reject Jews. I'm not going to preach like that. 
That'd be stupid on my part. If you're Jewish, by all means do it. Jews for Jesus is pretty blunt. It's just like me. I'm frustrated with my country. I'm Half the people in this country I don't even consider to be my fellow countrymen. They're traitors. They're seditious traitors. I can come to my country and I'm going to stand on a street corner and I'm going to call the people of my nation out. I'm going to preach against them because they're my people. But if somebody from another country comes, as much as I'm so frustrated with my fellow countrymen, I'm not, I'm not going to take it too well if some guy comes from a foreign land and starts preaching like that. You know, wait a minute. You know, the Euro trash does it all the time about stupid Americans and you idiots have guns and all of this. As many problems as I have with my country, I'm not going to sit and listen to Europeans talk about my country that way. So we've got to remember those natural, that natural human nature and really attempt to show our love to minister to the Jewish people. That's why I don't use the word Jew. I try to avoid that in my conversation. Jewish people, a show of respect. Israel. And I'll, I'll, I'll stop with this one today. When we use the word Israel, that was the name God gave Jacob. The children of Jacob were the children of Israel. The children of Israel were raised up in Egypt and wandered through the desert and came into the land. Okay? But primarily that word Israel, if you look back to what God says to Jacob when he changes his name, it's, a, it's primarily referring not to the people, but to the land. The land of Israel. They say, Haaretz Israel. The land of Israel given to the twelve tribes of Israel or Jacob and promised multiple times to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the land. The land of Israel. Of Israel. Israel is also the descendants of Jacob through his twelve sons. The people inherit the land. This includes natural descendants and natural and spiritual. Believing Jews and natural Jews. Out of Israel there is a remnant which are the believing children of Israel. They are what Jesus calls Israelites indeed. Nathaniel, John chapter 2. Philip went back and said, we found a Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel says, what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. And then he saw Jesus coming and Jesus said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathaniel was a true Jew. He had the faith of Abraham, circumcised in the flesh and in the heart. And in his mouth was no guile. That means he wasn't perpetrating the lies of the Pharisees and the dead Judaism. He knew the truth. It's funny that these witnesses in Revelation 14, we're going to be told later, have no guile in their mouth. They haven't been been bought into the lies of the rabbis and the false messiah. They know the truth of what it is to be Jewish. Israelites indeed. So Israel includes the descendants of Jacob specifically. The church is the spiritual seed of Abraham, not the spiritual seed of Jacob. The descendants of Jacob are Jewish. And Israel is the people, natural and spiritual. And of Israel are Israelites indeed. But it's also referring to the land primarily. Today, Israel is used to refer to the land, not to the people per se. That word Israelites is an old word. Don't use that anymore. It doesn't make any sense. Israelites was a a term used that connoted the wandering tribes of Jacob, the wandering descendants of Jacob. 
Israelites. Especially now when they're back in the land, they're not wandering anymore. That's an outdated word that you wouldn't use. That's a Bible word talking about the Exodus and the days of Joshua and things like that. Israel primarily today would be referring to the land. And I'm going to end with this. Um, let me just... Uh, there's some other terms I want to talk about next week, but I'm not going to get to them today. But I do want to show you something here at the end. I'll talk about spiritual seed of Abraham. Israeli is a little bit different term. Judaism, Messianic, Israel of God. I'll, I'll review those next week. But we're gonna, I want to get back. I want to look at the church because right now we're in the church age. Where does the Israel of God? or the Israelite indeed, or the true Jews, where do they fit in the church? This is the church. This represents the entire body of Christ. This, the Israel of God is not the church. But in this dispensation, this is the Israel of God. Does that make sense? It's part of the church. It's the Jewish element of our church. Now when the church is taken out, the church and the Israel of God of this dispensation are taken out. And the, but the Israel of God continues in the 144,000 witnesses and the Jewish converts that believe during the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, um, let me go back to uh, a, a certain... When we talk about the land of Israel, I just want to give you a visual. You've got in your mind what the state of Israel looks like today. It's like the size of New Jersey. Okay? When the state of Israel was carved, they decided to do it from the biblical borders described in the Old Testament, Dan to Beersheba. Originally, uh, Israel, the British were going to give the land of Transjordan to the Jews as well, which is their land. God gave it to them. But at the last minute, they backed out. And so when, when, when the United Nations, when the, the mandate expired and they recognized Israel, it was only going to be that small part of the land. But this is what God promised to Abraham for a land. Well, that's the promised land. God told Abraham, I will give you the land from the Euphrates River all the way to the river of Egypt. This is the land grant given to Abraham. The land of Israel, the promised land. His descendants have never inherited all of that. There was a time when the kingdom of Israel extended all the way up to the Euphrates uh, and but it never included all this. The river of Egypt to any sane person that knows geography that hasn't changed for hundreds of years would be the Nile. Some people try to say it's the Wadi El Arish, which is this border right here. It's a dry riverbed. But that doesn't make any sense. The Nile River to the Euphrates. What does that include? What does the future land grant to Israel include? It includes where Abraham came from. Originally, where, where Jacob went and Isaac, where Isaac's wives and stuff came from, it includes where the sons of Jacob went and were protected in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. It includes the deserts where they wandered for 40 years. It includes where they came back up through the land and the, this land that God gave Jordan here to, the, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And it includes... The West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, Lebanon, and a great part of Syria today. So from where God called Abraham to everywhere he wandered. Remember, he went down to Egypt. 
where God built the nation, where they wandered in the desert, where they came into the promised land. It includes all of that. They've never had it. So, if God's replaced Israel with the church, then He never kept His promise. This will be Israel's land in the millennium, I believe. It's interesting that for a few years, from 1967, I believe it was 78 when Israel made peace with Egypt. I can't remember. Israel actually controlled the Sinai Peninsula. And in the 67 war, they got us within 40 miles of Cairo. Almost to the river of Egypt. But Israel gave the Sinai Desert back to Egypt for peace. I don't understand that. There was a period of time when Israel controlled the Sinai, and I've heard stories about how it was this awesome wilderness that you could go, you were completely safe, beautiful beaches, you could hitchhike. It was just a great place. But then when they gave it back to Egypt, today it's crawling with ISIS, crawling with terrorists, Muslim Brotherhood. You can't travel from Eilat to Cairo without an armed escort in Egypt. It's very dangerous to go out of Taba the border town. People don't take tours to the traditional Mount Sinai anymore. It's sad, but one day all that mess will be cleaned up. So when we hear the word Hebrew, today it's mostly referring to the language. When we hear the word Jew, it's referring to descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we hear the word Israel, it refers to the land of Israel. In terms of the promise God made to Abraham, it's a lot bigger than Dan to Beersheba. A lot bigger than that. Anybody have any questions? Do you find this interesting? Next week I'm going to just finish up with a couple terms. I want to explain the difference between Israel and Israeli. And then I want to talk a moment about the word messianic. And then I want to get into the text itself and look at what's actually happening. These snapshots of victory or assembly and judgment and rest and reaping. I hope I hadn't bored you to death. Nah, I'm hungry. <laughs> Alright, let's pray and we'll go eat, guys. Thanks for indulging me today. Father, we thank You for what You've taught us today. You are a God of promise. And if Your history and dealings with Israel tell us anything, is that You are faithful to an unfaithful people. And God, many times we are unfaithful. Uh, Lord, we are weak. We don't exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. We become self-focused and depressed and discouraged. And we expect You to act even now. And we lose sight of the faith of Abraham. But God, You're faithful to us. And because You are faithful, we can rest in Your promises for the church. Because You're faithful to Israel and You will restore them, we know that what You said to the church is true. So thank You, Father. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray that You will bring many of Your... Uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel to faith in Messiah. And uh, Lord, bless our food and fellowship this morning and just thank You for the Word, God. May we not be hearers, but doers as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.